Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. You are very lucky to have me. I am excited to, I'm excited to be here. I was, I was Cameron, uh, we were kind of trying to figure out how we were going to break up this grace-defined uh, series of messages here in, in January, and I was quite excited when he's like, can you talk about the, the historical overview of the kind of the big moves of, of grace throughout the church from the close of the biblical canon up until where we're at today. And I was like, that sounds great. I would love to do that. And so got back and started diving in. And I realized there is actually a lot has happened over the last 2,000 years. And, uh, and grace has been at the center of a lot of that. So I've had to part, part it down into what do I feel like are the, maybe the, the most significant movements and discussions on grace over the last couple thousand years. And so we're going to look at four big ideas today, um, and hopefully that gives us at least a framework or a context to, to better understand how the church has understood grace over the last couple thousand years. And the reason that we are spending this six-month period talking about grace is because grace is the central theme of the Bible. Right? The, the Bible tells the story of how God has revealed and shown his grace to, to save his wayward image bearers. Right? These people that he created that rejected him, we see throughout the Bible God's grace to bring them back into relationship with him. In Genesis 3.15, uh, at, the, at the very beginning of the story, after Adam and Eve fall, they eat the forbidden fruit, uh, God is cursing the serpent, and in Genesis 3.15, it prophesies and, and speaks that one day I'm going to send the, the seed of the woman. I'm going to send a Messiah to crush the serpent's head. I am going to restore all that you have destroyed. I am going to restore all that you have destroyed, is what he said. Okay, anyway. And so that's very early. And then at the very end of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the last sentence of Revelation, John the Revelator says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Right? And so this Bible, this book that we study is saturated with grace from beginning to the end. Right? And so this central theme of the Bible is such a big deal that the church fathers and academics and uh, philosophers and disciples have been wrestling through these ideas. How do we understand grace? How do we understand how it, it works? Right? And all uh, throughout the history of the church, we see um, you know, early on we have the church fathers, and then there's these church councils dotted through the, the, the centuries. Uh, we, the, out, out from many of those councils come the creeds that we still recite and help us to understand the faith today. And the, the reason that we look back and see what the, the, the church has said over these last 2,000 years is because there's so much value there. 
right? We as New Day Community Church, as this little charismatic church, we didn't spring up out of the ground fully formed, right? We are part of this ongoing tradition and this ongoing intellectual discussion and this ongoing experience of the revelation of Jesus Christ, And we would do ourselves a disservice if we kind of reject or ignore or turn a blind eye to what the the church has said, right? And so we want to pull out the the value of these councils and creeds and, and thinkers and because it helps us to think rightly, right? It helps us as we are interpreting scripture to not fall off this way or that way. All right? And as we come into right understanding, that actually helps us come into greater levels of freedom. All right? And so that's why we are spending the next little bit talking about the history of grace in the church. Luckily, I don't have to spend too much time talking about what grace is because Dan Slade on January 6th and Cameron last week did a fantastic job of talking about common grace and talking about grace last week as personal and and powerful. And you can go back to the the New Day website and you can immerse yourselves in those teachings and to, to get a greater understanding. But I do want to just touch on this because it helps us uh, as we talk about these historical discussions, to, to remember that grace is an attribute of God. Right? It is this quality of God. It is an aspect of his love. The, the grace of God speaks to how God deals with his people, not on the basis of our merit or our worthiness, right? but simply according to our need. Right? And so we often think of grace, a, a great definition is unmerited favor. This is the, the love that God pours out upon us that we don't deserve. Because if God was not gracious, we would have no chance of salvation. Right? We inherited this thing called original sin, this sin nature from Adam that has passed down to all humanity. And I came up with this great description of how man has been separated from from God. So think of it this way. Man uh, was connected with God and then sin came and created this big chasm between us and God that we cannot cross. So good. Wow, that's amazing, Mark. Right? And, uh, and we have no way, none of our efforts, none of our trying to be good is going to get us anywhere. We're stuck on our side, right? But God, in his grace, sends Jesus, the, his son, to die on a cross, to bear the weight of our sin, to take on the, the penalty of our rejection of him so that we can be restored, right? It, but the, the church's understanding is that it, that is the grace of God. We have nothing in ourselves because we have original sin, right? That separates us. We need God to come and get us to cross this massive gap. And so this idea that we're going to talk about today is saving grace. Grace is multifaceted, common grace, saving grace, drawing grace, empowering grace. There's all these different ideas of grace, but what we're going to focus on today is saving grace, the grace that moves a person from the the kingdom of darkness, from that place of deserving wrath into the, the place of God's 
kingdom, into God's family, right? The, we no longer need to bear the brunt of the wrath that we deserve because Jesus took that wrath upon himself. So, and this is where many, many people start to argue about grace. What does it mean, right? We're trying to understand what, how does this saving grace work? Who gets it? How do I get a hold of it, right? And the grace is just so big. It's so incredible. It's so beyond our finite understanding, right? That we're, as we try to figure it out, we, we can't get our hands all the way around it. And so we start to argue about it. Go, go figure. Sometimes Christians can begin to argue about things. It's crazy. Not us, but other people I've heard of. And so we're going to start our discussion in the 5th century with a gentleman by the name of Pelagius. And Pelagius, uh, he lived in the 5th century. He was a British theologian. And the, the thing that uh, stands out and the reason that we want to talk about Pelagius is that he had this idea that man uh, does not have original sin. Right, we just talked a minute ago that there's this original sin passed down from Adam to all humanity that separates us from God, and we need Jesus to cross this gap. Right? But Pelagius says, well, no, 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 we don't have original sin. We're not completely broken. Right? Adam, that's not what happened when Adam ate the forbidden fruit. What we get from Adam is just a really bad example. Don't do what Adam did. Look at, the, look at the consequences of that situation. He, he fell, he got kicked out of the garden, you know, there's all this enemy, enmity and division, and it's, it's just a bad deal. Right? Don't do that. But what we can learn from the, the Bible is that, that there's this guy named Jesus, and Jesus didn't fix original sin because that's not a thing. Jesus is just a great example we should do what Jesus did, and then we can be restored to this kind of, uh, this place of moral perfection. It just takes a lot of work. Just get to work. Come on, guys. How hard could it be? Right? And so when Pelagius talks about grace, uh, he's not talking about grace as we understand it, but he's talking about man's free will to choose good or to choose evil. And here is something that the Pelagius said. He said that mankind has the power to do good, to convert themselves from sin by their own power, and the ability to work out their own salvation. And he said that the value of religion is just to teach us virtues. We get a good example and we get a bad example. What are you going to do? Right? And so he was this ascetic monk, which means he was very rigid in his understanding. You know, and he was doing whatever he could to be off these, what we would call these natural, sinful human desires, right? And so he's like, just work hard. You can do it. And along comes this guy named St. Augustine in, at, at this same time. And Augustine comes into harsh conflict with Pelagius. He disagrees sharply, and Augustine is one of the most important figures in church history from the, the close of the biblical canon. We, you know, St. Augustine really set us on a trajectory of how we think about faith and how we think about the things of God. And he said, Pelagius, you're completely incorrect. There absolutely is original sin. 
Adam wasn't just a bad example, but he did bring sin and judgment and condemnation. Right? Because of him, we are born in sin, we are bent towards sin, we continue to sin, and we have no way of making that up. We can't beat ourselves up into being good enough. And he says, in addition to that, he's like, and if what you're saying is true, it doesn't explain at all why Jesus had to come and die. Right? A lot of people came and died on a cross. Right? That doesn't, but that doesn't save us. It's only Jesus, his death that saves us. So Christ, he uh, overcame that sin, right? He brought righteousness and life, bridging the gap between us and God. And Augustine said, you know what, Pelagius, your teachings, they're a burden that are far too great for people to bear. And if we look at our lives, if we look at our community, if we look at the biblical narrative, we don't see anybody doing good enough to earn their way in to heaven. So that's a problem. Okay, so I had a lot of notes that I had to pare down here. So we are, this is the short 35-minute version of this teaching. <laughs> uh, our friend Augustine said, men are a mass of sin. Isn't that great? <laughs> That's not very encouraging. <laughs> men are a mass of sin. Uh, they can no more endow themselves with grace than an empty glass can fill itself. All right? We need Jesus. And so this, he comes up with this idea, right, of total depravity, right? We have nothing in us that can get us to God, okay? So what can we take away? Why would we, you know, 1,500 years later, care about what Pelagius and Augustine were arguing about? Well, the, what we see in Pelagianism is what we might call humanism, Right? This idea that, man, if we are good enough, we can earn our way into heaven. I don't know if anybody's seen a little TV show called The Good Place. Anybody? The Good Place. I'm not recommending that show, but... So, we, Amber and I love, love that show. And the, no spoilers. There's, there's no spoilers. Uh, it's, there's these four people that they get into the afterlife, right? And... Things happen. And what we find out is that in the, the afterlife of the, the good place, there is this like room full of celestial accountants that are keeping track of everything that these people do. All the good things they do, you know, when they help a little old lady cross the street, they get some good points, right? Um, and when they do something uh, bad, whatever that is, they get negative points. And at the end of your life, you're, you're, you, they sum up the total. If you have enough, you go to the good place. And if you don't have enough, you go to the bad place. It's a great TV show, but terrible theology. Okay? So don't ever get your theology from NBC. They're not good. They're not good at it. That's not what they're trying to do. Right? But that is a prevalent understanding of the afterlife in our communities, in our world, in our culture, and inside the church. We act like we can earn our way into heaven. Right? And what Augustine and Pelagius, that argument came out, uh, what came out of that argument is that we need Jesus. We need the grace of God because we don't have anything in us to earn our way in. Amen. And so we can rest 
and the grace of God. So, moving... Oh, oh don't go back to Augustine. We've got to go forward about a thousand years. Like I said, this is a 20,000 overview of church history, right? So we're just jumping forward a thousand years into the 16th century. <laughs> What's that? I'm halfway done, exactly. You're welcome. So, uh, so in, in, in Catholicism, and the, I just do, this is a quick aside, this is not, we're in no way slamming Catholicism or modern day Catholics. We love our Catholic brothers and sisters, but grace happens to be one of the areas where we have some disagreement. Okay? And so in the, the Catholic tradition, the benefits of Christ's sacrifice or grace are conveyed physically through the church's sacraments. Okay? And this comes from a book by Bruce Demarest called The Cross and Salvation. Uh, it's a good book. And so there's this idea that there is this like treasury or this storehouse of grace that the Catholic Church had control of, and they could, through the, the sacraments like the, the Lord's Supper or baptism, or the Catholic Church has seven different sacraments, as opposed to Protestant Church has two sacraments. Um, the, as you partake of those sacraments, right, they can uh, dispense a little bit of grace into your account. Okay? Great. Uh, the baptized person, according to Demarest, is justified as he or she cooperates with the sacramentally infused grace and performs meritorious work. And so where we come into some conflict here is that we're like, man, that's too much work, right? It's just grace, right? And so, that, that, so this is, there's this idea of the, this reservoir of grace that can be deposited into people's account. So in medieval Catholicism, there is this corruption running rampant in the church. Uh, in the 16th century, some priests are going around and they're selling these things called indulgences. Indulgences were a, a way to reduce the amount of punishment one has to undergo for sins. It may reduce the temporal punishment for sin after death. All right, so what is that saying? That there, the uh, in that tradition, after you die, you go to, to purgatory to work off any excess sin, and then you move into, into heaven. Right? I know that that is a, not... You can be understood or you can be accurate. I realize that there's a lot more nuance in the, in the Catholic tradition than this, so forgive me for that. But, so that's the idea, right? And so the, in the 16th century, there's some priests selling indulgences. They're, they're saying, man, you know that you've messed up. Right? And we all have, but if you just give us you know, a little bit of gold, you know, give us a few sheep, whatever it is, we can uh, you know, dispense a little bit of extra grace into your account that's going to move you through purgatory that much faster. Not only that, but we remember your, your uncle and your grandfather. <laughs> they weren't prizes either. So you could also buy a little bit of indulgences for them. We could dispense some, some grace into their account, and you could move them a little bit quicker through purgatory. Right? And so in this, and this is just one piece of the, the corruption in, in the church at that time, and on the scene, in this time, comes Martin Luther, right? We love Martin Luther, the great reformer. And in 1517, Martin Luther has some serious disagreements with the Catholic Church. I think that's a fair way to say it. Yeah. Uh, and he really 
opposed this view that, that grace was some sort of a substance that could be given to people through sacraments. He saw that as too much works. There's too much works involved in that. And he begins moving the, the, the understanding of grace back to we are saved by grace alone through faith. You know, you can't add anything else to it. And so this is one of the reasons that he goes up to the, the Wittenberg Chapel and pounds the 95 theses on the, the, the door, you know, kind of coming against some of the corruption of the, the church at that time. And that's why the Catholic Church gets so angry, chases him out of the country, right? But he begins the new way of, of thinking about grace. And he said that human works will avail us nothing. Grace is a free gift. Grace is given freely to those without merits and the most undeserving and is not obtained by any efforts, endeavors, or works, whether small or great. Even the best and most virtuous of men, though they seek and pursue righteousness with burning zeal. There's nothing we can do. We are depraved in it's God's grace, and there's nothing we can do to earn God's grace. It is a free gift. And we just, we just have to receive it. All right, so, so, again, what can we take away from medieval Catholicism or this argument, the, the Reformation in 1517? The Reformation really transformed how we think about grace as a free gift, right? We, we said, you know, we are saved by grace through faith alone. There's nothing we can add to it. There's nothing that, that we can do to earn it. And what we can take away, we would all most likely agree with that. We go, yes, that is true. Except so often we don't act like it. We agree with it, you know, kind of in this, on this mental level, except I know, not any, not any of us probably, but some other people, they will sin and, uh, and, in, and they repent of that sin, but then feel this need to like, I need to do this thing so that I can move back into right standing with God, Right? Oh, I went out on, on Friday night, drank a little bit too much, things got out of hand, I, I need to go to church and repent, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read my Bible real good this week. Right? As if, like, I'm in favor of people reading their Bible, that's great. But the motivation to do it so that we can earn something from God is incorrect. It's just wrong. Or like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up every morning early and pray because I, I want to restore this relationship. No, the relationship's restored. When we repent, when we turn from our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us. And so we remember Martin Luther and medieval Catholicism because we want to remember that it, we are saved by grace alone. So then, we can't jump forward another thousand years. We're just going to jump forward a little bit later into the 16th century, and we have uh, John Calvin comes along, and he is continuing to, to think about and write about uh, theology. And he, this is what he, this is how he understood and described grace. He said that grace is radically gratuitous. We would agree with that. Uncalled for. It is unwarranted. Grace is not bestowed according to men's deserts, 
Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Right? It's, a, it's unmerited favor. Number two, he says that grace is effectual. God's will and working can never be thwarted. Right? When God reaches his grace out to somebody, that is going to affect the purpose that he had in mind. Right? And number three, God's grace is secret in its working. The blessings of grace happen through the secret providence of God whose judgments are unsearchable and his ways past finding out. And so what this is saying, in, in part, that in, in eternity past, God sovereignly purposed to bestow saving grace upon whom he would. And Calvinism, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment in Reformed theology, there's no such thing as this universal or prevenient grace, this grace that goes out to all people so that anybody can turn their uh, eyes to Jesus, repent, and be saved. And so John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Right? And so... Uh, Reformed theology would interpret this as being God has sovereignly chosen certain people to be saved and they will be saved because grace is effectual and he will raise them up on the last day. And Bruce Demarest in the book The Cross and Salvation, a Reformed theologian, says the rest of humanity he left in their self-chosen sin to suffer the just penalty thereof. And so there is, of course, nuance in Reformed uh, theology. Um, but they mostly would, would say that God isn't damning people to hell, but he is, nobody deserves grace. So the fact that he's offering grace to anybody is gracious. And it's not that he's damning somebody, he's just letting them stay in their self-chosen sin to reap the results of that sin. Okay? And so in Calvinist or Reformed theology, the elect that we read throughout the, the New Testament, these are, God, these are the people that God has sovereignly chosen. But at this time, another Reformed theologian named Jacob Arminius comes along and he has, just has some... He comes in conflict a little bit, a little bit, with, with John Calvin's understanding of grace. And so Jacob Arminius, he says that his understanding of grace, the law, in love, God sent Christ into the world for the purpose of saving all humankind from the ruin of sin. God's goal was to save everybody. God desires the salvation of all people. And so an important verse for our Arminians and people in that kind of theology would, would be 1 Timothy 2.4. God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Right? He wants everybody to be saved. Or 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so when, when Arminius saw these verses in, in the Bible, he's like, man, this just seems like there's conflict, there's tension. I don't know how to, to resolve this 
with these other verses that seem to show that God is kind of sovereignly choosing some to be saved. And, you know, how does, is grace resistible or is it effectual? And how does that all, these are the kind of things that he's wrestling with. And so he comes up with this theory and this understanding that, uh, that we know of as prevenient grace. That there is this grace that comes from Christ's cross that transforms sinners. Right? And Arminius said, you know, he, he believed in total depravity, but that we could not bridge the gap on our own. But he said that this prevenient grace or this drawing grace or this universal grace nullifies the debilitating effects of depravity. Right? And so God deals with that depravity. In number two, he says, now he restores this ability for humanity to make moral uh, good choices. They can now choose good or choose evil. And the third thing that this prevenient grace does is it brings conviction of sin. Right? We wouldn't even realize how messed up, how fallen, how broken, how far from God, how, how wide this crevice is without the grace of God. Jacob said, man himself without prevenient or assisting, awakening, following, and cooperative grace can neither think, will, nor do good, nor withstand any temptations to evil, so that all good deeds and movements can be conceived, that can be conceived must be ascribed to the grace of God and Christ. This is a free gift of God, this that, that, that God is offering to all humanity. But where he comes into conflict with Reformed theology, right, is that he says that this grace is resistible. That you can understand, you can be convicted of sin, you can realize how far, how far away from God you are, and you can go, I'm going to choose to stay in my sin. I'm going to continue to reject God. And so for, for our Arminians, the, the elect that we read about in the, the New Testament there, they are not those that God has chosen, but those who have chosen to step into, through faith, the elect one, Jesus Christ. And so now, in Christ, we are elect. And so the pushback here is like, well, you're adding works. You're going back into this synergism, right? You're adding too much to, to, to grace, right? And he's like, it's not a work. This is not a work. This is merely a, a, a receiving of the gift that God is offering to the whole world. And today, there's still a lot of debate. There's still a lot of talk. There's a lot of conversation and people kind of pushing back, trying to figure out how grace works. And as in this morning, I happened to be reading uh, through the book of Romans for my personal devotional time, and I, I, I'm in Romans 10. And in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is wrestling with grace, and, and he's wrestling with predestination and Israel and the, the Gentiles and, and how all this works out. And as I was reading today, he doesn't seem to have a, a difficult time just embracing the mystery Oh, is it, is it predestination? Is it God's sovereign choice? Yes. Uh, is it man's free will that we need to, to turn our attention to, to Jesus and, and bend the knee and follow him? Yes. 
And how do those, and sometimes some of the ways he talks and other uh, biblical authors talk, it seems like those things are in conflict. And so we, as systematic theologians, we love to kind of try to wrestle through and figure out how does this work? I want to put it in a box when the reality is that God is massive and far beyond us. But as I have read and studied, and I uh, go to school with uh, a bunch of people from different uh, backgrounds and different understandings, whether Arminian or Calvinist or some nuance of those or Orthodox, all these different ideas, and what we find is that these people all love Jesus a whole bunch. Right? And these sometimes we want to create division and say, uh, oh, oh, look at those Calvinists. They're just kind of these angry people looking forward to damning people to hell. They have a, they're misrepresenting God, right? And maybe a Calvinist would look at our Arminian and like, they, they just refuse to rightly interpret the Bible, right? And we create these divisions. And, but when you study them, these people are all just loving God and trying to figure out how does the grace of God that is so immeasurable, so far beyond us. How, how does that work? Both of them are trying to glorify God in his love, in his grace. And so we don't want to draw lines of division in the church when both of these viewpoints fall within appropriate Christian orthodoxy. Right? So let's come together because the reality is we agree on a lot. Where do we agree? We agree that humanity is incapable of attaining salvation on its own. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Right? And it, it, oh, I got to wrap up. We, we, were, we have to, you know, we cannot attain salvation on its own. I already talked about that. Okay. Where do we agree? We agree that grace is this unmerited favor. Right? Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved, not by works. So good. We agree that God's grace is powerful. Jack Hayford, a Christian author, said God's grace has the power to bring us from death to life, from failure, guilt, shame, and sin to forgiveness and into relationship with Him. All of us who are in Christ today have, have encountered the power of God's grace. This grace that moves us from a place of death, deserving wrath, into a place of life, in love, where we are lavished with grace and mercy. We agree that grace is empowering. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Doesn't that sound like Popeye? I am what I am. Um, <laughs> Popeye was a cartoon, guys. Uh, and his grace to me was not without effect. So, FYI, I'm not recommending that either. No, I worked harder than all of them, Paul says, yet not I, but the grace of God that was w within me. Right? It was the grace of God that empowers me to do the things that God has called me to do. We agree that God's saving grace is entirely his doing. 
There's no amount of Bible reading. There's no amount of church attendance. There's no amount of prayer. There's no amount of uh, communions you can take. There's no amount of service. There's no amount of money that you can give to earn God's grace. It is, it is just that. It is grace. You're saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. And we agree that grace is imparted to us through faith. When we repent and we, we uh, bend the knee to Jesus to serve him as our Lord and Savior, we are saved. And so that is the super quick 2,000, 20,000 foot view of the last 2,000 years. What I think are some of the important movements. And we, we do that so that we have a better understanding of, of, of grace. And I also talk about it so that we don't continue to bicker and, and argue about differences that we might have about our understanding of grace when there is so much that we agree on. And I believe that we, as we look at grace in its mystery and its unfathomableness, it should draw us into worship, not into divisiveness. And so as we continue to press on into grace this year, let's let it, even when you don't understand some aspect of it, just look at it like you're looking into the, the stars of the sky and just go, man, it is so much bigger than I can understand. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that I am a recipient of your amazing grace. Yeah.